Welcome to Invited In, a podcast connecting the global family of Samaritan's Purse. Here on the podcast today, we have special guests, Justin and Cassandra Daggett, and they have served with our post-residency program uh, since 2019. And on On the Ground with Samaritan's Purse, our other podcast, we just released a episode on World Medical Mission, and it spotlights the wide range of activities that World Medical Mission is involved with. And so I encourage you to listen to it because it's a deep dive into the work and how we send medical missionaries and equipment all around the world. Uh, but one of the one of the missionaries that we talked to were Justin and Cassandra, and we we had a small clip on that episode. But we want to give you the full interview and the context into their story today, and allow you to hear their hearts and how God called them to serve. And I was able to talk with Justin several times uh, for on the ground, and we were just so impressed with their family and their obedience that we brought on Cassandra as well. And we wanted to share their story. Um, and we talked with them in February 2020, so right before the pandemic. And we weren't able to air their episode because we quickly shifted to all things COVID and pain and loss. And But we kept coming back to their interview and just how encouraging it was. And so as they wrap up their time with post-residency, we thought it'd be a great time for you to hear their story and be able to pray for them and for other post-residents that are praying about what God has for them. And so first, we're going to play a clip that Justin shared. And, and some of these quotes that he said, I hung on to during COVID and lockdown, and they really impacted me personally. I am a plastic and reconstructive surgeon currently serving in a mission hospital in Kajabe, Kenya. Um, and I'm a part of the World Medical Mission post-residency program. Uh, for my first two years here. Um, and so that has uh, largely been um, helping us as we get started on the field uh, with our goal of being long-term missionaries here um, at Kajabe and kind of helping us get the ball rolling and get started and really kind of uh, establish some momentum on the field. And so we've been reaching out to Samaritans for staff all over the world. Um, so we would love to hear you know, what your hospital has been able to accomplish in this past year, what you've seen God do? Yeah. So, um, like I said, specifically, I work in plastic and reconstructive surgery. And while most people kind of hear plastic surgery and you think of Botox and, and the cosmetic aspects of things, um, that really covers the gamut in terms of mostly reconstructive. So dealing with complex facial traumas, extremities, and then I specifically specialize in pediatric and congenital uh, issues such as cleft lip, palate, and other kind of craniofacial abnormalities. Um, and so there's really kind of a couple big things I've really seen happen since we've been here. And one of these has been on that pediatric side. Um, at Kajabe, we started a cleft and craniofacial team um, pretty recently, and it's been largely myself and then David Nolan who happens to be another prior Samaritan's post-residency program uh, surgeon who's uh, an ENT at Kajabe. Um, and so the two of us have been working on this cleft team, and we have just seen incredible growth um, and uh, are really seeing uh, some amazing progress in terms of advancing cleft care in Africa. And this last week, we actually hosted the first ever uh, training for both surgeons and speech pathologists in dealing with patients who have ongoing speech issues after their clefts. And so this is the first time this has been done in Africa. And just, it was amazing to see all of the pieces that came together, both locally 
um, and in dealing with some of the international organizations such as Smile Train. And it, it's been, it was really amazing to see that. And we had uh, surgeons and speech pathologists in from five different countries, uh, specifically focusing on learning this and kind of bringing cleft care up to a better standard. And so that's the most recent kind of really, really neat things we've seen happen here. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, so I'd love to hear how your faith has changed, even in this past year. You know, what has God done in, in your family specifically? Um, he's taught us to depend a lot more on him. It's really easy in the U.S., mm-hmm. even as a Christian, to not depend on God because we have so much insulation, right? We have insurance. We have great medical care. We've got all of these great things that we can use to buffer ourselves Mm -hmm. from coming to him in real need. And over here, I mean, we're still very blessed compared to so much of the population in terms of, you know, the comforts and and the safety that we do have, but it's very different, you know, and there have been many times since we've come here where it's like, you know, we're depending on you for this because I don't have the backups that I had. And, and so that has really been one of, I think, the biggest single thing he's taught us. I just love the way that Justin said that we're so insulated here in the U.S. You know, we have a false sense of security with uh, insurance and air conditioning and running cars and just all these things that, that in and of themselves aren't bad. But I think collectively, they, they take away our dependence on God because we have so many things that help us function on daily life. And so COVID, you know, stripped us away from our control and our our security and certainty in so many ways. And so I just, I want to stay, you know, grounded in the fact that our security comes from God. And I love Psalm 121.1 that says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We need to continually be looking to Him in both good and bad times. And we also need to keep our solid foundation. You know, Psalm 127.1 reminds us, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And um, Justin and Cassandra help remind us how to look to the Lord and make our foundation truly be in God. And so I want you to hear a conversation about how they were called overseas and, and what they're doing at Kajabe. They came to Christ later in life, you know, as early uh, as adults. And as they were, you know, in medical school, Justin was and, and, and attending or doing his residency, you know, he had his plans and aspirations for his life. But as they came to Christ— God slowly started changing and shifting their focus. And I just love the way that God called them overseas. And so here's a little bit about what they're doing currently. So at that point, we had five kids. And, you know, I was like, well, it is time to get done. It's time to make a little bit of money. (laughs) You know, um, private practice sounds great right about now. Um, But it really kind of after that fact, it started changing a lot of our priorities. And one of the big ones was, I remember coming home to Xander and saying like, look, I don't, you know, I don't think I want to go and do private practice cosmetics. Like I still enjoy the operations, but ultimately, you know, sure I can do that, earn money and give the money. And that's great. But that's not my first fruits. Hmm. Like ultimately what I am doing and like my first fruits, my labor, my thought, my effort, is not going where I feel like God wants it to go. 
And so I kind of changed track a little bit and started kind of pursuing more of the pediatric and craniofacial, which is like the cleft and the congenital anomalies and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, kind of told her, look, I'd really like to go and pursue this, um, which as she very eloquently and very accurately put it. He came home to tell me that he was going to add another year of training on this already long journey <laughs> and delay making an income. And not only that, but as a craniofacial surgeon, would make significantly less than a private, you know, plastic surgeon, a cosmetic surgeon. And what may not even get a job because only about 30% of people who go through a craniofacial fellowship get a job. So more time, less money and more uncertainty was basically what he was coming home and pitching. Right. So understandably she was a little bit skeptical of that at first, but I'm grateful. She was very trusting of the fact that, you know, I felt like that was a calling that had been kind of put on us uh, or on, on me in terms of my career. And so, you know, we started then kind of pursuing down that path, but um, recognizing that, you know, if I got to the end of this fellowship and didn't have a job and didn't have anything else, she might rightfully lynch me. Um, I had worked very hard to try and find an opportunity, you know, to make sure that I was finding somewhere to, you know, apply these skills and to work in this field. Um, and so I had uh, basically mapped out the U.S. east of the Mississippi, where all the major centers were, where all the major cities were, and all these things like that, and had looked for a void, somewhere where I said, okay, here is an opportunity to build a practice in this, to reach an area that's not, you know, has a need and all these kind of things. Um, and I found a spot. Um, and that was in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, with the East Tennessee Children's Hospital. So it was a standalone children's hospital that had no plastic surgeon. Um, and I'd done all the population analysis and all this stuff. And basically I come up with a whole business plan for, I was going to build a department there. Um, and we actually went up, we met with, this was, you know, before my fellowship, we went up, we met with last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, met with the CEO, chief surgery, all of these things, and basically pitched my view for how to build a program there. And I left and I still have it because it makes me smile. Um, I left with a handwritten note from the CEO saying, when you finish your training, we stand ready to make this happen. Hmm. You know, so I was like, yes, perfect. You know, life plan is clearly in place. This is obviously what God wants us to do. Um, and plus Knoxville, Tennessee is my favorite city in the world. It, it really is. I, I love the area. I think it's just gorgeous. And like, I couldn't pick somewhere I'd rather live. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you have, you know, your plans and your vision for your future and then God's plans and God's vision for your future. Um, And so in that same year, um, as we're wrapping up residency, getting ready to start fellowship, um, we had Thanksgiving with some good friends of ours in Florida, and they were also hosting a family who were Zambian, who were in the U.S. The wife was pursuing her um, residency in OBGYN, and the husband had been in healthcare administration in Zambia. And so we spent Thanksgiving talking with them and, you know, obviously came away very impressed with the need for medical care, especially surgical care, and then even more so like specialty care. Um, And, you know, the real complete lack of that in many of these countries. And, you know, but at the time it was, well, we should do something about that when the kids are graduated from college in 30 years from now, right? This isn't the the phase of life 
to do that. Right, exactly. exactly. Once, once we've got our, our retirement all sorted, then we'll go help people. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things that just kept weighing on me for the next several months, really. Um, and finally, I got to the point where I, I prayed what I kind of say is a very smart, very dumb prayer, which mm -hmm. was, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, please make it evident. Um, and so <clears throat> after panicking in normal human fashion, I did say, all right, I guess I did ask for this, right? Um, and so started kind of looking into missions. But neither of us, had, we, we'd been Christians for two years. Not, yeah, not even. Yeah. We, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't know another missionary. You know, my, my vision of a missionary where you, you were a pastor that, you know, had all this training and knowledge. And, and so didn't even know where to turn to get help. We didn't know how, how do missionaries get to the field? How do they support their family? No idea whatsoever. And we just kind of started scrambling, trying to find it on our own. Yeah, which failed mightily. Um, again, it was like after I think three or four months of like trying to figure out where God wanted to go and I'd kind of get an idea and then a whole bunch of doors would close in my face. And finally, you know, uh, like I said, after several months came back and said, help please Lord, uh, you know, I'm, I believe this is what you want us to do, but I am totally lost and have no idea how to proceed. Um, and then, you know, lo and behold, once again, like a week later, uh, we were talking with someone about this and they're like, Oh, I know who you should talk to. You should talk to this pediatric surgeon. He grew up in Niger and goes back to Africa every year. And I'd actually worked with him early on in my medical training and never knew that about him. Um, but so, but knew him. And so I called him up and kind of, you know, said, Hey, you know, Drew is his name. This is what we're kind of, you know, feeling, but I'm totally lost. Um, do you have any suggestions for us? Um, and he said, well, why don't you come on over for dinner? Turns out that they literally lived two streets down from us in our neighborhood and we had no idea. Um, so we went over to their house for dinner and um, sat down there and kind of laid out what we'd been feeling that, you know, we felt this call, but, you know, I felt like I was trying to find somewhere to teach plastic surgery on the mission field, which is kind of crazy because where does that happen on the mission field? Um, and he was the one who kind of put the pieces together. He said, well, there's a mission hospital in Kajabe, Kenya. There's a plastic surgeon there named Peter Nthumbo who's been trying to start a training program for a long time. And Samaritan's Purse has this post-residency program that, you know, can help kind of get you started fresh out of your training. Um, but I think the application's due in about a week. Um, <laughs> so we went home and downloaded the application, which I think was due in like five days. We had to file for an extension on it. The funny thing is, is we didn't even really need the extension because we had no experience. So we're filling out this application and we're saying, they're never going to pick us. Right. Because it's, you know, how long have you been a Christian? Two years. What's your mission experience? None. None. Church leadership? None. Like, how long have you wanted to be a missionary? And we're like, eh, maybe a few months, you know? And so like, we're, we're, we're never going to, we're not yeah. going to pick us. And we're talking about like, this is going straight in the garbage. Um, but it, it, it didn't. And we ended up, you know, getting selected to join post-residency program. And now we've been on the field here in Kajabe for, I guess we're coming up on a little over a year. Yeah. A little over a year now. So it. it's been a whirlwind couple of years. I love it. I think, and I think you said the quote of when God asked you to do something, it's not yes or no, it's to obey or not to obey. 
Yes. And I use yeah. that all the time because, you know, we had something like that, nothing, nothing to your degree. I mean, we just got out of the army, but we didn't, you know, leave the country. We just moved within the state, but you know, same thing. It was, you know, we looked at, do we give up retirement? Do we give up this? You know, the things the world says to do, and yeah. God asks you to do something. It's not later. It's not when things are settled and when things are in yeah. a row and you just go. And so I love your obedience and I love the way you just recklessly followed him. Um, so thank you for giving us more details because it's even more fascinating than I even thought. When, when they, when we first got accepted into the program, um, the team at World Medical Missions, you know, asked us if we wanted to do a site visit. Um, and I think they might have thought we were a little, little crazy because we said no, um, because it was clear enough to us that God wanted us to be here, um, that the cost of a plane ticket and the time in the middle of a fellowship we said it didn't really matter if we liked it or not. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about whether we liked it. It was whether he wanted us there. And so going and seeing Kajabe wasn't going to change anything. Um, yeah. I love it. You're bringing, you're making me cry. Um, I love it. Cause it's like, it's not a job for you. It's a calling, you know, and when God calls you to do something, you're right. It's not a matter of our preferences and our, our likes and our feelings. So talk to me about that. What was it like um, taking your kids to Africa? Yeah. After not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, I think oftentimes we tend to look at things and say like, wow, God, God blessed me with this, right? He, he brought this to me. He made this situation um, to, to benefit me or, you know, for my happiness or things like that. Um, and I always like to think of it as kind of the opposite that God created me, he created my husband, and he created my children, knowing where he was going to place us, knowing what was there, and created us in a way that those blessings would come to fruition. Um, And so our family's always been very outdoorsy, very adventurous, even all of our children's temperaments. And so I worried about taking um, our children away from family. You know, being apart from grandparents was the hard part. Um, but I really wasn't too worried about a lot of the other things, um, just because of how the kind of children that he, he placed in our family. Um, and when we arrived here, seeing that matching of my personality and their personality, um, and realizing that he really created us to be here. Um, I mean, there's things that are hard. You know, there's things that my children really miss and there's days when they're sad. There's days when I'm sad. There's days when I don't want to be here at all. Um, But then there's things like the fact that we can take off for a hike to hot springs or a waterfall, which is something that we love right out our door. Um, And the fact that he created us with that inclination, knowing he was going to place us here and to help with sort of those, those transitions, Um, you know, it made it a lot easier and and I see positive changes in my children, the environment that they're growing up in here. I'm incredibly grateful for, and and there's challenges, but when it all mets out on a scale, um, it's, it's in their favor. So can you talk to me, Cassandra, about a typical day? What does it look like? And do you homeschool your kids? Mm-hmm. So we do homeschool our children. We have one that's going to the local mission school, um, RVA, 
but mm-hmm. our younger four, our middle four boys, I should say, are all homeschooled and then the baby is two. Um, so Justin goes off for work. Um, and it's nice because our daughter's also an early riser. Um, and so, which is really nice because back in the States, he was gone before anybody saw him, but because mm-hmm. he now walks one minute to the hospital, he and our oldest daughter usually have breakfast before the rest of us are up, which gives them a little bit of time. Um, and she heads off to school and then the boys and I get up, um, we start with our school day, um, and we're fairly flexible. So we're schooling through a good portion of the day, but it might be interrupted by us walking to the market to get something or going for a hike. Um, sometimes we have wonderful house help. And so, um, sometimes I'll go into the hospital to help, um, photograph or just to be a helping hand, um, in Justin's craniofacial clinic. A lot of those moms come in and they're there all day because they see so many specialists. So not only to help photograph, but I also like to be there just because when you have a fussing baby and a tired mama, it can be hard to understand what the doctor's saying. So just to be an extra helping hand to grab the baby so mom can talk to the doctor. Um, and the fact that I can do that and be part of, of what he, he does in his ministry for me is really, um, really fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, have lunch, go through the whole school day. We're usually done with our school around one. Um, the climate here is such that the kids go outside <laughs> and are outside every day. And so that gives me a few hours to get other things done, to work on ministry odds and ends. Um, I'm working on a video project for the hospital. So I often work on that during that time. And then um, I actually coach field hockey up at the mission school, up at RVA. Um, and again, just it's a different environment. So the kids come with me. Um, they all come up with me to coach babies strapped on my back. The boys come up with their little hockey sticks and play on the sidelines. And, um, we're at hockey practice. Um, we get home around six o'clock and then sort of just rejoin the family for dinner and, um, kind of close out our night. Awesome. I love the way that they do life with you. You all do, you're all on mission together. It's so awesome. And so Justin, can you talk to us about a typical week for you? What does it look like? Yeah, so for the most part, um, <clears throat> my week's split between, you know, several days that are more theater time, meaning direct operating time, and then several days that are more clinical time, you know, seeing, evaluating patients, treating minor things outpatient. And then we have every other week, we have a big cleft and craniofacial clinic, which is specifically dedicated towards all these kids with congenital anomalies, basically. And so we have um, multiple specialties, nutrition, feeding, ENT, plastics. Um, hearing all these, all these different things. We have them all in this clinic so that they can all see these children as they come through. Cause a lot of these kids have multiple issues. Um, and so, uh, one of the things I really loved about being here is the fact that like, as Cassandra was saying through all of my residency and fellowship and all these things like that, I was typically up and out before the sun was up. I never saw anyone in the morning. Um, and usually I was home you know, we usually ate a late dinner so that I could be there for dinner. And then by the time dinner was done, it was bedtime. So basically I got a total of an hour and a half to two hours with the kids, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it was usually the last two hours of the day, which is when the best time with kids, right. You know, it, it's, they were all tired and I was tired and, you know, so it was, um, you know, it was really hard getting quality time with a lot of them. Whereas here I have breakfast with Carrington every morning. 
a lot of the days, like if I finish a case around 1130, I run home and have lunch because I know in the time that it'll take everything to get cleaned up and turned over, I can run home, eat with everyone and be back in the hospital. You know, and same thing on clinic days. So, you know, I'd say probably three days out of the week, I managed mm-hmm. to get home for lunch. Um, and then, you know, and then I'm again, usually home in plenty of time for dinner because there's no commute, there's no anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and even on when she's coaching field hockey, I can usually get home to get that started and get all that stuff going. And so it's been awesome from that standpoint of just being able to be around a lot more than I ever was in all of training. Um, it's been neat too. There have been a couple of days where he's had a really hard day at the hospital. Like things just have not gone, gone to plan. Um, you know, the, the realities of working in a mission hospital sometimes can be really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been able to call me and I can say, it's okay. The kids and I are going to bring you lunch. The fact that we can, you know, just grab the lunch, pack it up quick and walk over and, and be there for him. Like during that tough time, um, you know, it, it's nice to be able to support him. That is so awesome. And while we're talking about the hospital, can you introduce us to Kajabi Mission Hospital? Yeah. Um, kind of tell us about it um, and, and how it operates and, and who all, how, many, how much staff is there? Sure. So the hospital itself is actually one of the older mission hospitals. It's mm-hmm. what they celebrated 110 years last year. Um, it actually started out of RVA, which had started, I think, 10 or 15 years prior. They had like a small medical clinic and it kind of grew and grew and they and eventually broke off and formed a separate hospital, um, which is why we're just kind of down the hill from the, the school. Um, and so it has kind of steadily grown through that time. Um, and it's now, a, it's kind of an interesting situation in that it is much larger than most mission hospitals. Um, like I said, you know, where do you teach plastic surgery in the field? There aren't many places that are set up for that. And Kajabe has kind of been one of these that has started to transition out of, you know, direct, mostly primary care mission hospitals to more of a secondary referral center where we have ENT, plastic surgery. Um, You know, typically they're in between neurosurgeons right now, but they've traditionally had neurosurgery available. Um, And so, you know, and they've been building a lot of these training programs. Um, and the goal being to kind of start feeding into the next generation um, of Christian physicians in Kenya. Um, and so it, it's, you know, it's still, don't get me wrong, it, it is not U.S. hospital. It, there are a lot of things that are still um, very challenging in terms of, you know, you don't have the instruments you want. The lab doesn't work the way you want it to work, you know. All, all, you know, there, there's a lot of these challenges, um, but it's big enough that we've at least been able to start kind of moving into this um, kind of a little bit of a secondary care phase. One of, one of the things that I think is really exceptional about the model is the idea of, of multiplying that, you know, one mission doctor can only do so many procedures um, in their lifetime, um, but to train up um, nationals who can then take these back into their community. So you just had general surgeon rotating on his service a few months ago from South Sudan. Um, And has had people from all across East Africa and um, you can can probably rattle off some better than I can where you've had people come from. Yeah. We've had them, Uganda, Tanzania, South Sudan, Gabon, um, I think there are a few others, but So getting this training, not just in medicine, but they also um, are going through all sorts of different discipleship courses. 
And then when they go back home, they can go back into their community and they can evangelize so much more effectively than, than we ever could um, because they're a person of that community. They're going back, not just the ability to heal, um, but in many communities, doctors have a very high social position. Um, mm-hmm. And that position of respect, that position of care really puts them in a, a wonderful place, not just advanced medical care, but to also share the gospel. Um, and so that idea of, of multiplying um, is really unique, I think, to this hospital. So awesome. I love hearing that. And you're right. It, they can d- minister in a way that none of us ever could. And so it's neat that you can be training. And so while you're talking about training, um, can you talk to us about the post-residency program? And, you know, Samaritan's Purse really values the next generation, you know, of medical care. And like you said, not only it's training the nationals, but w- why is Samaritan's Purse wanting to bring more doctors, yeah, overseas? And build this program for the post residents ourselves. I mean, Samaritan's Purse really serves an incredibly valuable stepping stone for us. And mm-hmm. you know, it's for most people coming out of medical school, there is a tremendous challenge to get the field, and that's debt is one of the big things. You know, you're you're dealing with all the debt you've accrued getting all of this training, and then at the same time, you're not only trying to pay it down, you're trying to fundraise, and all of this, you know without really having anything to show you I mean you can come and tell people this is what we'd like to do but you know it's a little bit more challenging to say hey look you know here's a drawing of what we'd like to do versus you know a Samaritan's purse we can get these first two years in our belt and when we go back to make that transition to a long-term agency like I don't have to have a drawing of what I'm going to do I have tons of photos and stories and all of these things saying this is what we're doing you know this is what we're actively being able to do um, and I think that that really helps both you know, connect with people who are interested in supporting you, um, and as well, it just it makes that process a lot easier. Um, and I think it really helps you kind of get you know because there are a number of people who've gone through the post residency program who've gone to one place for post residency and then gone somewhere else. Like it gives you that chance to um, get that experience on the ground right off the bat, and then you know take that and then use that wherever it is you feel like you're finally being called. And the team, I would say, has a huge commitment to, but they, they play the long game, right? They're here. They're there to support us being here, not just these two years, but forever. Um, and so if you came with, um, you know, another method, you might very well be just thrown into a hospital without guidance, really with kind of on your own. And the fact that they assign um, hospitals where not only is there a need for that particular specialty, but making sure that there's mentorship, that they're following along, making sure that um, that you're not just doing well and you're calling with God, but that your spiritual health is okay, that at the end of the two years that you're not completely burned out wanting to go home, but that you have the community of support that you need, both you know at your hospital where you're working, as well as with the team um, back in the state. So awesome. You just answered a, like a dozen questions that I had in those two answers, but um, I just love hearing your heart and I love hearing your sold out service to the Lord um, and introducing you because Samaritan's Purse, you know, we are all over the world. And I think some of us will never meet this side of heaven, um, but we are all working towards, you know, the same kingdom. And it's just awesome to hear your hearts and know how to pray more specifically. But how can we pray uh, for your family, but also for, you know, your hospital and who you're ministering to? Um, 
So I think one of the biggest things in terms of kind of the clinical side of things is, like I said, we've been trying to build this training program. And that has been a little bit challenging because we're trying to work with the Kenyan government in doing that. And we thought we were there and done basically in September. And then they dissolved the medical board and restructured it into a council and basically just completely upended their entire credentialing system. So we're back to square one on doing all of that. And so that's been one of the things that's been challenging and frustrating because, you know, you're saying, look, we're here to try and do this to help you this. And, you know, sometimes it just isn't, uh, doesn't seem like they understand that, um, which is, you know, it's a challenge of government anywhere, but especially so in, in this part of the world. And so that's been a real challenge. Um, I'll say the hospital is a little bit of a different model than a lot mm-hmm. of mission hospitals. And I guess I would say for discernment and wisdom as hospital leadership tries to make tough decisions as you're trying to balance serving the needy while also ensuring that the hospital is going to be there, that it's not going to go bankrupt. Um, and as you try to balance those needs, um, being a little bit of a different model and not necessarily having another model to, to follow just for wisdom and discernment um, in the coming years um, as the hospital tries to follow God's leading. I'm so grateful for their prayerful yes and the way that they are they were serving God as post-residents in Kajabe. And I love the way that their whole family served. You know, they were able to really put their roots in deep and um, be, be involved in their community together. And so please be praying as they're asking God for guidance on their next steps as a family. And if you want to keep up with their journey personally, you can go to their website, reconstructivefaith.com and hear about what God's leading them to do next. And um, and be praying for all of our post-residents that are currently serving, that are wrapping up their time. And just as God continues to guide them, you know, we talk a lot about Proverbs 16, 9. You know, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. Being praying for these post-residents that as they have their course and their, their plans in mind, allowing them to be used by God and let Him direct their steps and take them um, somewhere else if that's where He wants them. And so we are so thankful for the way that they say yes and the example that they are in our lives. So thanks for tuning in and God bless you.